The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to have our thinking enlightened by the absolute truth that you have revealed to us. We pray that we might have the humility to listen and the objectivity to see how these things apply to our own lives and that we might be positive to your word and responsive, that we might exchange the human viewpoint ideas in our own souls with the divine viewpoint thoughts and principles given in your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things now, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get started in our study on Daniel, I thought I'd give you a little update on the... uh, trip down to Houston this last week for the ordination exam. Ordination is a very important, very solemn occasion because it is the opportunity to recognize that a man has been given the gift of pastor-teacher at the time of his salvation, that he has taken the time over uh, the time since he was saved to study the Word, to grow and advance to spiritual maturity, and to prepare himself for the ministry of the gospel for teaching the word and and shepherding a congregation, which means emphasizes the idea of shepherd emphasizes leadership. And leadership today is something that is lacking and leadership biblical leadership leading with the teaching of God's word is something that is even even more rare. And as I've gave myself over to a lot of thought about ordination, qualifications for ordination this last time because of course, I was invited to participate in an ordination exam at a, another church. I was not setting the standards. But I've given some thought to ordination over the years because I've been, I've been influenced by my study of church history. I was particularly impressed when I was a student at Dallas Seminary as I was studying church history, realizing that back in the 1700s and 1800s, the men that were going out as missionaries on horseback, the itinerant Methodist, back in those days, of course, the Methodist preachers had not become liberals like they are today, where they don't really believe a whole lot about the inerrancy of the Bible, and uh, various other denominational groups who have all succumbed to 19th century Protestant liberal thought. Back in those days, all the denominations, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Episcopals, were all, uh, and Baptists, were all grounded in a view of the Scripture where they believed in the infallibility of God's Word. And because they believed that the Word of God was infallible, they believed it was necessary to understand it in the original languages. And so these men were trained in uh, Greek and Hebrew. And what's even more interesting is if you go back into the into the uh, 17th century, into the 1600s, and up in this part of the country, where you had the influence of Puritanism coming out of out of uh, Massachusetts. And of course, most of you should know this. If you don't, I don't know why you live up here. There must be no history taught. But most of the major universities up here, like Harvard and Yale. Many of the others were founded for the purpose of training pastors for the gospel ministry. And it was only as time went by, and this happens with every institution, that they succumb to ideas that are non-biblical, and eventually they deteriorate and fall away from the truth into apostasy. But there was that emphasis. And so back in those days, these are not just, you know, too often Hollywood sort of shapes our view of these country evangelists, but the men who actually went forward with the migration of people in this country and the westward expansion were men who had their Greek and Hebrew Bibles in their saddlebags. And they were men who could stand in the pulpit with their Greek and Hebrew text out in front of them and teach from the original languages. And they were men who um, 
who had, in many cases, if you go back into the Purit- the impact of the Puritanism, they taught everybody Greek. If you went through grade school, you learned Greek because they wanted everyone to be able to uh, study the original languages and read the Bible in the original languages. And frequently men like Jonathan Edwards, who is probably one of the foremost um, preachers, pastors in the uh, colonial period, was um, he knew more about Greek and Hebrew when he started college. I'm not talking about seminary, which is a postgraduate experience. But when he started college, he knew more about Greek and Hebrew than most seminary, four-year seminary graduates know today. And so he just built on that, and that was the emphasis in education there, and it was a high standard. When I was a, a, a young pastor, and I pastored down in Lamarck, Texas, uh, there was an older pastor in the congregation who had pastored that church for 40 years from 1933 to 1973. And when he was ordained in 1932, he had gone to Mo- three years at Moody Bible Institute and then four years at the uh, Austin Presbyterian Seminary, which in those days was a Southern Presbyterian school and was still solid theologically, had not succumbed to liberalism yet. And when he was ordained, he told me he had to pass written exams in Greek and Hebrew, along with oral examinations to make sure he understood uh, theology and understood the Bible. And that is something that is so often lacking. One of the things I appreciate about the standard that was upheld uh, at Baraka is because they treat ordination as a solemn and significant occasion. And it, 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 it comprised of a, of a man being sent a questionnaire that has 80 questions. Um, very similar. In fact, I think the questionnaire that this church used when they were looking for pastors is the kind of the scaled down version. I think that, ex- that questionnaire only had 30 or 40 questions, but it's basically the same <coughs> structure. And, uh, most of the answers, most of the candidates took about 40 to 50 pages of typewritten answers to those to their questions and they have to submit that and then that's evaluated by the deacons it's evaluated by a group of pastoral uh consultants who are brought in as the ordination council and evaluated by pastor theme and and his son uh bobby who was ordained down there back in the 80s and is also a seminary graduate from western conservative baptist theological seminary and so all that's evaluated and then uh, once they pass the written part, then they're invited to come to Houston for the ordination, and there is about a two-and-a-half to three-hour oral examination where uh, they sit up in front of the congregation and people, the public's invited to come in and listen. And the uh, uh, pastors, the ordination council, ask them questions, and they have to be able to answer. They don't, can't have any notes. They don't even have their Bible with them. They're just grilled on what they know to give them an opportunity. You know, the purpose isn't to embarrass them or to show what they don't know. It's to show what they do know and to give them that opportunity. And there's always a few of them that that uh, <coughs> uh, have a few blank looks. And it always happens. You'll see one guy who knows cold what the answer to the question is, and they'll look at you with this blank look like they never heard that before. That always happens, but the purpose is to give them an opportunity to explain these things in public before an audience to demonstrate that they have a communication gift. And I've always felt like um, if I were, when when I ordain, I have had one ordination as a pastor in my career, and I made sure that uh, the that my standards are that a pastor, I will not ordain somebody unless they've had two years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, completed three years of seminary. And I think I would add, after some experience with Dan the last couple of years, uh, 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 one summer or or whatever the length of time of a pastoral internship so they have that that experience. But what we have to do is remember that the standard should be high. What's happened in our culture is we dumb things down. And somebody comes along and they have the gift of gab and, and they have a nice personality and they spend a semester in Bible college or they've uh, memorized a lot of doctrine. We think, well, that's okay. We can ordain them. I think the standard needs to be kept high because uh, of the nature of the pastoral ministry. And we need to challenge young men and, you know, to, uh, to, to go to 
seminary to make that a plan from the time they're in high school. I remember when I was in high school, I began to think that there was a real possibility I had the gift of pastor-teacher. And so one of the reasons I majored in history and English uh, when I was in college was because I knew that would prepare me in many ways for the pastoral ministry and for studies in seminary uh, later on. And I know others who majored and went to universities where they offered classical Greek and they majored in classical Greek or other areas like that. And if you wake up and you're 35 or 40 years old and you discover you have the gift of pastor-teacher, often it's too late to really exercise that well because you've already got, you've gotten married, you have a responsibility there, you have three or four kids, you have a responsibility there. And although it may surprise a lot of people, kind of the, I think the average age of a student at Dallas Seminary when I was there back in the 70s was probably close to 30 because that many men would go out and they would work for a few years. I taught school for a couple of years before I went back to seminary. But that that adds some maturity to it. But too often if you wait until you're in your 40s, it's just too late. You know, you've let that time go by. And it's sad to see how many guys lose that. There's so much that is involved in in learning and, and taking the languages and, and going through that process of, of everything. It's not that it's, it's, um, it can't be done. You certainly have a situation like we know with, uh, with Dan and his work, but of course Dan's got a unique situation because he's never been married and he's retired from the military and so he's had that, that opportunity. But too often men make decisions get involved with commitments and responsibilities after their 25 to 30 years of age that make it almost impossible to ever go back. So we need to have that as an emphasis. And those of you who are teaching in a prep school, with uh, the, the as they get older, as they get up into 6th grade, 7th grade, on into junior high and high school, that ought to be something that you don't beat kids over the head with it, but you mention every now and then, let them know that that's an option. And those that have the gift of pastor-teacher will will be responsive to that. And that's how we train the next generation. That's how we carry that standard forward in teaching the Word is by uh, training young men, giving them that that challenge of of, uh, of dedicating their life to uh, professional, we're all in full-time Christian service, but dedicating their life to professional Christian work, and it involves a long amount of training in order to be able to go through all the academics and learn all the academics so that they can uh, accurately teach the Word of God. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's not a three-year program. I'm convinced that... um, most of these, most pastors have what's called a Masters of Divinity. Uh, maybe I'll take a minute to talk about that because what's happened in the last few years is a dumbing down of the pastorate because of the, uh, what I would call degree, uh, deflation. And what happens is we, we have carried into seminary education the fast food drive through lane, uh, mentality of our culture so that people don't want to take the time to go through the hard work uh, and commitment and discipline of of getting a seminary education, and it's you can't just run it run it through like you go up and order a fast food hamburger or fried chicken or something, and and there it is. And yet that's what what happens, and people think that somehow they can make shortcuts, and so seminaries have yielded to that pressure. Sad to say, I remember uh, Dallas Seminary for most of its career built its reputation on their flagship degree, which was called a Master of Theology degree. And I, want, I was talking recently with, uh, with the one man I've ordained over the years, who's the academic dean at the College of Biblical Studies in Houston now, and he was telling me that he just took the school through its accreditation process so they could become a fully accredited school and offer a bachelor's degree. And he told me, he said, Robbie, a THM degree almost carries more weight with an accrediting edu- uh, agency as a doctorate. Because, see, most of you, if you're not familiar or haven't gone to college, most bachelor's degrees comprise about 120 hours of, to 130 hours of, of uh, schoolwork. Uh, master's, most master's degrees involve 30 hours of classroom work plus six hours for a master's thesis or project. A Master of Divinity is a three-year seminary program that usually involves 70 to 80 hours of graduate work plus a master's thesis or project. 
a master of theology involves 130 hours. I have more hours in my uh, master's degree in theology than I had my undergraduate degree, plus a thesis. And uh, you go to many seminaries, and you have a Master of Divinity, and that's a, like I said, a 70 to 80-hour degree. Then they'll go back, and they'll get a Doctorate of Ministries, which is a 30-hour degree, and you add that together. At the most, you have 110 hours. Well, you get a THM from Dallas Seminary or from any other school, and it's usually 120 to 130 hours. So you've got more graduate hours in that Master of Theology than you do in most uh, what most pastors think of as a, as a doctoral degree. So that's just what what a quality program that is. And yet Dallas introduced a uh, initially it was a good idea it was a, a lower level Master of Arts degree that they introduced back in the mid-70s because there were a lot of people who, lay people who wanted some biblical training. They wanted to, they were perhaps uh, involved in church leadership or they wanted to go out on the mission field at some level, but they didn't want to get that THM degree, whatever their end goal, end usage uh, position was. It did not demand a, TH, a full THM study program. Well, of course, you know what happened by the mid-80s because people didn't want to do all the hard work involved in a THM program, taking three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew and all of the other study that was involved. You had more and more people were going to seminate to Dallas and getting that two-year Master of Arts degree, and then they would go out and they would get, and, and some church would hire them as a pastor because the church didn't understand what I've just taught you, and that is that there's a difference between an MA degree, which is 60 hours, and a THM degree, which is 130 hours. And there's a vast difference there, and yet people thought, well, it's a master's from Dallas Seminary, so it's all the same thing. But no, it's not the same thing. There's a vast difference, and so different degrees involve different amounts of work and different amounts of study, and I think that men, we should always uphold a high standard challenging people to take the high standard. As believers, we're to do all things for the glory of God. That means that everything we do ought to be done with excellence. And no place should we have excellence uh, more pronounced than in the local church. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to do things in a church of our size, out in the cornfields of southeastern Connecticut, that we're going to do things in a qualitative way. Let's say some urban church that has 2,000 people and a tremendous amount of skill and talent. But excellence just means you're doing it the best you can. You've got a level of professionalism. Uh, it's not doesn't have to be uh, Broadway quality. It doesn't have to be uh, first class in comparison to somebody else. But it's going to real. You're really going to try to do the best you can. Always pushing yourself to a higher level, a higher standard. And, and always trying to improve what it, what you can do with whatever resources you have. And that should be true for uh, the pastoral ministry. Well, we had the oral exam, and there were six men involved, and three of whom, uh, one, of course, is Dan, and the other two are also, two others were also consistent tapers from uh, Preston City Bible Church. And they did far better than the other three. They did really well. I was proud of our guys. They really came through. They they showed a tremendous understanding of um, of scripture and doctrine. They were the most relaxed crowd there, and um, and so they they did really well. So we can be very proud of them and the excellent work that they did, and especially of Dan. And we were well represented there, Christine. Camo and Jeff came down, and, and Nancy and uh, Ron Goodrich was down too. So we had a had a, a uh, also Katie. Of course, I don't think I always forget Katie because she's from Houston. I think of her as being there. But uh, Katie and Ryan were down there also. So we had about six or eight people from Preston City Bible Church there, and uh, we had a great time together and fun running around Houston in the hundred degree weather. I loved introducing. Uh, the uh, northern contingent to Cajun food, you know, just going out to uh, Papa Do's and eating good uh, crawfish pie and etouffee and filet gumbo and all that good stuff you get down down in uh, Houston and down in Louisiana. So we had a great time, 
and uh, we can be very proud of Dan. He did a fantastic job. But we need to keep that standard high for the pastoral ministry. This isn't something that just you just turn, crank out somebody just because they can talk and just because they've gone to a Bible college. Now, that doesn't mean that a Bible college degree isn't good. You look at what the training is. You look at the degree, because there's some Bible colleges, Bible institutes, undergraduate degrees in this country that I, I, I know when I went through Dallas Seminary, I, my first year, I had three roommates who went to Dallas Bible College. And at that time, Dallas Bible College, which doesn't exist anymore, but all their faculty were Dallas Seminary graduates, both master's and doctoral degrees. And you look at the work that they were doing, they were doing the same work we were doing at a, at a master's level uh, in terms of the Bible, because when you study the Bible and you write a paper on the Bible, it's basically the same thing. So they were, there, there can be some excellent education at a bachelor's level. But the, what you're looking for really is that those years of Greek, years of theology, and their ability to communicate uh, orthodox theology and keeping that standard high, always having a, a, a gold standard for the pastoral ministry. Well, let's turn to Daniel chapter 11. And I think last time we stopped somewhere around the 32nd verse. Now, up to this point, we have been studying the career, uh, the careers really of the Seleucid dynasty of the uh, kings in the north. There were, after the breakup of the Greek or Alexander's empire, after that empire broke up, you had, um, broke up into four sections. The two sections, the two empires that the scriptures focus on are the Syrian Empire, the Seleucid Empire to the north, called the King of the North, and the Egyptian Empire to the south, ruled by the Ptolemaic Dynasty, and that's referred to as the King of the South. And, of course, Israel and Palestine's located, Judea is located in between those two empires, and for the first period of time, from about 320 B.C. down to about 200, uh, Judea is under the, under the heel of the Ptolemies. And there were those in in, um, in Judea that that chafed at that control, and they wanted to break away. And they, unfortunately, under uh, when Antiochus the Third was invading down into uh, Egypt, they tried to throw their weight behind him and got in trouble as a result of that. When Ptolemy uh, defeated uh, one of the Ptolemies, defeated Antiochus the Third. And that never worked, and they, they weren't paying attention to what Daniel had prophesied here in Daniel 11. But we ended or concluded our time last time looking at the terrible destruction of Antiochus IV, called Antiochus Epiphanes, as he desecrated the temple, desecrated the sanctuary. They were offering, um, they put an idol to Zeus inside the sanctuary, and they were uh, offering uh, pigs as sacrifices on the altar the women were forbidden on penalty of death to uh, circumcise their sons. They were forbidden to practice the Sabbath. They were forbidden to practice the dietary laws. And as a result of that, it was a, a horrible time. And there were, as always, there are those who want to fight it, and there are those who just want to give up and assimilate. There's always the pacifists who would rather give up and, and not invo- get involved in any kind of conflict. And these were the Hellenizers. They wanted to just let the Hellenistic influence, the Greek influence, come in, and and uh, it would have destroyed their distinctive Jewish heritage. So it was at this time that God raised up a a man by the name of of uh, Mattathias, who was a priest. He lived in a small town just about 15 miles from uh, Jerusalem, a town called Modin. And he was going to initiate a rebellion against Antiochus, and we know of it as the uh, Maccabean Revolt. And this began in 166 uh, B.C., and that is the beginning point of what is covered in verse, starting in about verse 33 of Daniel 11. In 11.33 we read, And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. What we see in 33 through 35 is a summary of the historical trends toward Israel from this time in history, from 166 B.C. 
all the way until the second coming of Christ. We see the end point called the terminus ad quem in verse 35. Verse 34 reads, Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. Many will join them in hypocrisy. Verse 35, And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, that phrase, end time, is an eschatologically significant statement. It refers to the end time when the Messiah would come and bring in the kingdom. Now, from their vantage point, they don't see the two advents of Christ. They're looking at at the fact that Messiah will come. They're, they're not distinguishing between a first advent coming when Jesus will come to suffer at the cross and a second coming where he will offer the crown because, of course, they wouldn't, wouldn't perceive and it wasn't prophesied in the Old Testament that Israel would reject Jesus as Messiah. And so this is just looking at it sort of telescope down and summarized. And in these three verses, we get a, a, a synopsis of the historical trends that Israel will face the struggle they will face down through the what we call the intertestamental period, but it has all, will also continue through the present church age and on into that final seven-week period of Dan, known as Daniel's 70th week or the uh, time of Jacob's wrath. So this covers an entire period, and it has primary application in this Maccabean period, but it has secondary application in terms of, of um, their, the whole history of Israel down to the second coming. Now, Israel's caught between a rock and a hard place, so to speak, between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. And not only that, but there's a problem internally because of power politics and uh, playing off one one group of people against another group of people and in, in who's going to get the high priesthood, who's going to be the power power broker. And then once the Seleucids took over, they were appointing certain men to be high priest because they could raise up more money so they could pay off uh, the the uh, uh, debt that that Antiochus had to pay to, to the Romans. So this is a time of... of uh, tremendous amount of internal disruption in Israel. You have a pro-Syrian faction, you have a pro-Egyptian faction, you have the those who are prone to, to Hellenize and compromise and do away with their uh, Jewish heresy, and then you have those who want to take a strong stand to uh, maintain their distinctiveness. Well, Mattathias, the high priest, or the, excuse me, the priest in Modin was of that type. He was extremely conservative and wanted to take a stand against the, the, um, Hellenism, Hellenistic influence that was, he saw the threat to Judaism. And in 166, Antiochus sent one of his generals to Modin in order to force uh, Mattathias to offer a sacrifice to the pagan gods. He completely and absolutely refused to do so, and one of the Jews in the village came forward to comply, and so Mattathias not only killed the Jew, he then turned around and killed this uh, Syrian general that had been sent to force him to comply. He then turned to the townspeople and said, well, you can either follow me in a revolt or you can uh, run the other way, and most of the townspeople followed him in a revolt, and they took to the hills, and for the next couple of years, they waged war against the, the Syrians. They lived in the hill country of Judah. They lived in the caves, just as David had many years earlier. And they would come into, continuously go through Judea, raiding villages, tearing down the pagan altars that uh, the Syrians had erected. They would circumcise the children whose uh, mothers had failed to circumcise them because of the uh, threats from the law. And they were organizing the people for a widespread revolt against uh, against Antiochus. It wasn't long after the revolt began in 166 that Mattathias died, and he left the war in the hands of his third son. He had five sons, and those five sons all played a key role in his in the leadership of his revolt. But he left the war in the hands of his third son, Judas, who was called Maccabeus because Maccabeus comes from a Hebrew root meaning the hammer. He was a brilliant strategist and general, and it, he defeated three of Syria's best generals 
at Emmaus, at the town of Emmaus. And then, after that victory, uh, Lysias, who was the Syrian regent, he was the one Antiochus had put over the whole area of, uh, of Judea. Uh, Lysias came out for a fight, and um, uh, Judas defeated him. He then went in and restored the worship at the temple. He cleansed the temple after the, uh, this was three years after Antiochus had desecrated it. He restored the temple worship, cleansed the temple, and they were going to light the candles uh, for the dedication of the temple, but they only had enough oil for one day. But miraculously, as the story goes, that oil uh, continued to keep that the candelabra in the in the temple lit for eight days, and that is the basis for the feast of lights called Hanukkah, and that is where where that comes from. From the, it's not an Old Testament, a biblical feast, but it is one that goes back to and commemorates the victory of Judas Maccabeus over the over Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, the conflict between the Jews and the Syrians continued, and, and Judas continued to fight for full independence from Israel. In 160, he was killed at the Battle of Elisa, and the pro-Syrian forces seemed to have won. But the fifth son, remember, Judas was the third son, the fifth son or the youngest son, Jonathan, continued to wage the war against Hellenism, and he too was a brilliant uh, tactician and general. And he not only defeated the Syrian forces, but he also seemed to have been a master uh, uh, diplomat or, or, because he was always able to play one of the Syrian generals off against another one. In 160, 164, Antiochus Epiphanes died, and that left a vacuum in terms of who would reign or who would rule the empire. Demetrius I became the king. And But there was another son, uh, uh, a man named Alexander Bayless, who claimed to be the son of Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 150, he finally defeated uh, Demetrius I and won the kingdom. Well, Jonathan saw that, so he put his weight behind Alexander Bayless as he was fighting uh, Demetrius. As a result of that, when uh, Alexander won, he confirmed Jonathan's position as high priest and as the governor over Judea. So now they have legitimacy, and they began to consolidate their power base in Judea and give it a measure of, of independence. Well, I won't bore you with all the details because there's a tremendous amount of intrigue and back and forth over the next few years. But finally... Uh, by 142 and 143, Jonathan dies, and his older brother, the oldest of the five sons, Simon, now becomes the uh, high priest and the governor of Judea. Now, excuse me, he's the second oldest son of Mattathias, and he then institutes a new period of rule. He defeats the Syrians, and he enters into a uh, peace treaty with Rome, and that was in 142 B.C., and that begins what is known as the period of Hasmonean rule. So you have the period of the Maccabean revolt from 166 to 142, and then in 142 you have the beginning of the Hasmonean rule. That is the year in 142 when Simon secures a tax exemption from Rome for the state of Israel and gets recognition for the state of of uh, Israel. And uh, this period of time is a time when it, Israel is relatively free from foreign domination. But remember, this is still the times of the Gentiles, and they're never completely free, even when they have a, an appearance of freedom and independence. It's still very tentative, and they're still basically operating under the protection of some greater uh, Gentile power. Now, Simon is assassinated at a banquet near Jericho along with two of his sons. Now, when Simon institutes the uh, this period and, and is made uh, governor and high priest for life, they he the the Jews make him high priest and with the right of succession, so that all of his descendants are now going to be be the high priest. Well, his own son-in-law, who was named Ptolemy, not to be confused with the Ptolemies in Egypt. His uh, own son-in-law assassinates him and two of his sons, 
at uh, Jericho, of course, he's obviously making a power play so that he can be uh, recognized as a high priest. And then Ptolemy also sent some hitmen to take out the, the uh, third son, John Hyrcanus. But Hyrcanus was warned, and that's spelled H-Y-R-C-A-N-U-S. Hyrcanus was warned. He laid a trap for the hitmen and killed both of them. So John Hyrcanus now becomes the governor and the ruler, and he is the one who begins to uh, consolidate power in Judea during and, and lays the basis for the Hasmonean uh, dynasty. Now, the other thing that takes place during this period, now this is all takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that it's at the same time that you have two major factions begin to uh, coalesce or consolidate within uh, within Judaism. One group is a more liberal group. They're more open to Hellenism. They're less concerned about uh, theological orthodoxy. They're more liberal in their theology. They denied the reality of resurrection. And these are the Sadducees. The other group are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees had their root in a group of, of uh, fighters that were fighting against Hellenism, and they called themselves the Hasidim. Not the same group that are called the Hasidim or Hasidic Jews today, but the modern Hasidic Jews have their, uh, got their name Hasidim on the basis of what these earlier Hasidim did back during the Maccabean Revolt. Incidentally, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who was here back in March, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's great, 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 great grandfathers and uncles founded the Hasidic Order of Jews in, uh, started in Poland back in the middle of the 1700s. So he has an interesting uh, pedigree and an interesting family background as far as that goes. But um, the, the Hasidim, who are the extremely staunch, conservative, fundamentalist fighters against Hellenism and liberalism in this Maccabean period, uh, became known as the Pharisees. And that, of course, is going to play a major role in the New Testament, the, the conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, used that theological difference to get out of a, a scrape or two because he would say that he was coming to preach the God who and the resurrection of the dead. And as soon as he would say that, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, would start arguing with the Pharisees about whether there were whether or not there is a resurrection, and Paul would just kind of sit back and relax as he would play one side off against the other. So that's the background there. Well, John Hyrcanus was a, a, a master organizer. He was a brilliant general, but he was a bit tyrannical, and he establishes uh, his position very firmly in Israel. He is succeeded by his son, Aristobulus I, uh, who is even uh, more cruel than his father. For example, his uh, mother was supposed to take over one sphere of the government, but Aristobulus made a deal with the police and had his mother arrested and put in prison and starved her to death. So these are just wonderful people, and don't get the idea that, that Israel during this time was in a position of spiritual ascendancy. They're still in a spiritual apostasy, and much of the reason that so much of this was happening to them was because of their apostasy. Uh, Aristobulus was succeeded by his son, Alexander Janaeus, and he is also called Jonathan, and he's the man who first built that fort down near the Dead Sea called Masada, which would be the famous last stand of the Jewish forces in 70 A.D., when the Titus, as a commander of the Roman 10th Legion, would come in and basically starve, starve them out. Well, this is the type of thing that was going on in, in Israel at this time and continued up through the New Testament period, and various intrigues and fights and power brokering going back, back and forth, and eventually Rome took over, and then you have the rise of Herod the Great, who wasn't Jewish. He was a, an Edomite. And once again, you have 
uh, a time of tremendous instability, and it called for tremendous wisdom to know how to live in a nation when there is no political stability. And remember, if there's no political stability, there's no financial stability. And if you don't have financial stability, then everything else just seems to be in a state of flux, and you can't go anywhere in a nation if you don't have financial stability. You are just just basically treading water if not going backward. This is the purpose for the um, statement in Daniel 11.33. Before we go there, here is a picture of uh, the Hasmonean fortress in Jerusalem, the Hasmonean palace that was uh, discovered, or remnants of it were discovered by archaeologists. This is a picture taken, or a sketch developed by Aviona, one of the more prominent uh, Jewish archaeologists. Daniel 11.33 begins, And those who have insight among the people. This is a technical term in the Hebrew. Uh, it might be familiar to some of you. It's a Hebrew word, mashkeli. Mashkeli, and it's from the uh, root word, mashkal. Now, you'll notice that whenever you look at many, a number of psalms, they begin with... Uh, this word, as it's transliterated into English, or maskil. And this comes from a root word in, um, in Hebrew, shakal, which means wisdom or understanding. That's a basic root concept. And uh, when you look at it, at the word as it's found here, maskili, it's a hifil, Participle, that's a causative stem, and it involves those who, not only those who have insight, but those who cause insight among the people. So some suggest that it has the idea of those who are teachers and communicators of doctrine. It is most likely refers to those who are already skilled in wisdom and understanding from divine viewpoint. These are, these are the Old Testament saints who have reached spiritual maturity and have the ability, therefore, to communicate to other believers how to live and handle the problems, the adversities, the difficulties of living in a nation that is continuously in flux, continuously being overrun by different military powers, where in their terms you could say it's not much different from today, where there is continuous terrorism, continuous financial instability. Israel has almost triple-digit inflation. Uh, when you have situations like that, it's very difficult for a people to uh, establish themselves and grow. And what's happened in modern Israel is just a tremendous testimony to the industriousness and the determination of the Jews. So the reference here, those who have insight among the people or those who cause insight among the people, is a reference to mature believers who have come to understand the stress busters and the spiritual skills. And there were uh, eight of them in the Old Testament. Uh, they don't have, or nine of them, they don't have, or eight of them, they don't have occupation with Christ or the filling of the Spirit. And these were mature believers who came to understand the stress busters and were using them to face the incredible national catastrophes which Israel was facing between this time and it's really prophesied that it will be there until the Messiah comes. And they were able to teach others how to think and how to act under adversity. Remember, as believers, we can't solve problems the way unbelievers solve problems. And especially in the church age when we have this unique spiritual life that God has given us with the uh, indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the filling of God the Holy Spirit, we have a completed canon of Scripture and all of the promises that are given in Scripture, all the spiritual assets that God has bequeathed to the church-age believer, and everything that we have by virtue of our position in Christ, we have to take a stand for excellence in the spiritual life and solve the problems and face the adversities and the threats of terrorism in a way that is different from everyone else. We don't uh, or should not complain about problems that we run into, for example, in traveling. You run into a lot of security problems, and some people have more problems than others. I was talking with someone the other day, and they had gone through a security, uh, one of the security uh, gates and forgot to take off their cell phone. 
Well, you would think that you could just take off the cell phone, drop it in the basket, and walk back around and go through again. But no, if you set anything off, you're, you're basically almost strip searched, and everything in your bags has gone through. Everything's opened up. Everything's taken out. Everything's examined if there's the least little uh, thing. And that can be extremely aggravating and uh, it can be very difficult when you travel. And there are other things that we are going to face as a people as this war goes on that are uh, that's inconvenient for us and aggravating for us, and we are going as believers. We need to make sure that we are handling these aggravations and these adversities by using problem-solving devices, where we can have a relaxed mental attitude and have joy and peace despite the things that are going on around us. Verse 33, the Lord says, "Those are the people who." have insight. Those who cause insight among the people will give understanding to the many. There will be these mature believers will instruct the others as to how to handle the adversity. Yet for many days, verse 33 goes on to say, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. In other words, there will be persecution even among those who have insight. Somewhere along the line, I find out that Christians get the idea that if you reach spiritual maturity somehow, uh, God, or if you have been faithful in your life, that somehow God is going to preserve you from certain consequences. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that they're going to go through these horrible, uh, this horrible adversity. Some of them will die. Some will be martyred. Some will be killed and uh, killed by the sword. Uh, some will be killed by flame. They will be burned to death. And this happened to some of the Jews as a result of uh, uh, the vengeance of the Syrians. They would gather them into a building and set fire to the building. Uh, they would just come into a village and kill everyone. Others were captured, kidnapped, taken back to Syria. Others had all of their life possessions uh, stolen from them. And this happened to the mature believers as well as to others. Just because we live in a time, just because we're mature believers, doesn't mean we're immune from the disasters that occur around us. During times of national disaster, during times of, na- of, of uh, warfare, there are believers who are going to be, be killed as a result of terrorist attacks. There are believers who are going to as a result of collateral damage. For example, the stock market is just taking a nosedive as a result of a number of other factors, but not, not the least of which is the uncertainty of the times, not the least of which is what happened on 9-11. But b- believers aren't going to be immune to losing their life savings. Believers are not going to be immune if we go into some sort of major economic disaster our depression, believers are not going to be immune from hunger. Believers are not going to be immune from joblessness. Believers are not going to be immune from all of these uh, adversities that can take place, but they can handle them with poise and with happiness and with joy because they are using the problem-solving devices and applying uh, these doctrinal principles to the problems of life. This kind of wisdom that this passage uh, talks about is the kind of wisdom that was exemplified 150 years later when Mary and Joseph uh, went to Egypt. That was part of wisdom. Sometimes it's wise to stay in one place. Sometimes it's wisdom to flee. You know, the, um, discretion is the better part of valor, someone said, and, and that's true sometimes. And, and, of course, Joseph and Mary were warned by an angel, but they left because, Herod, because of Herod and because of his antagonism to the birth of the Messiah. So that's all part of this concept of having insight and understanding and knowing how to apply doctrine. This is the same kind of principle that the Lord refers to in Matthew chapter 10. He's talking generally now to his disciples, and there's a hint of the prophecy of what would take place in their later lives. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's believers living in the cosmic system where we are, we have a bullseye painted on us for Satan. 
I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In order to be shrewd as serpents, that means we have to study the culture around us. We have to study its weaknesses. We have to learn to be good tacticians when it comes to understanding our culture. We have to know its strengths, its weaknesses. We have to understand its subtleties. We have to see where arrogance is lurking, where human viewpoint is lurking and the human viewpoint is wrapped in a cloak that makes it look awfully close to divine viewpoint, but it's not. We have to be shrewd as serpents. We have to be very uh, cagey in the way we do things at times, not deceptive, but we have to be very thoughtful. We have to, to think about why we do what we do and how we do what we do and the timing of what we do. And uh, all of that comes just from spiritual maturity and understanding doctrine. So shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves means we don't get involved in unethical activity. You don't get involved in end justifies the means type of thinking, which is what one of the most egregious examples of this was a, an early or late 80s, early 90s movement called Operation Rescue, which was advocating bombing abortion clinics and some of these other uh, uh, people who have shot abortion doctors, that is, you never, the end never justifies the means. You never commit an evil or wrong or criminal act in order to achieve any goal. So we have to be shrewd as serpents and innocents as doves. And Jesus went on to say in verse 17 of Matthew 10, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts. They will scourge you in their synagogue. See, even the disciples, even when you do everything right as a believer, that doesn't protect you from disaster. What protects you in disaster is the word of God, though. Matthew 10:18. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not be anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. So Jesus warned of the need for that same kind of wisdom. When we live in the hostility of the kingdom of man, we need to be very careful about uh, what we do, how we do what we do, in order to maintain our testimony and in order to apply the word of God and Bible doctrine in terms of wisdom. Daniel 11.34 says, Now when they fall... That is, the they here is those who are wise. When they fall, they will be granted a little help. They would not always succeed. And in terms of the uh, interpretation related to the historical situation, uh, there were times, for example, when, uh, uh, when um, uh, Judas Maccabees died, there was a sense of failure that they were going to lose, and then... Uh, Simon came along and was, or excuse me, Jonathan came along and was able to give them a victory. So when they fall, there'll be times when we stumble. There'll be times when leaders stumble or are caused to stumble. There seems to be a temporary defeat, but they will be granted a little help. God would continue to work in Israel. He would not desert Israel. And then they're warned, many will join with them in hypocrisy. Literally, this means many will join with them in intrigue. There would be those who would come along and ally themselves with the Maccabeans and with other leaders over the years who were uh, would actually be traitors and would be insincere in their desire to help believers and would fall away and not hang in there when things were tough. So there is a warning not to trust everyone, not to just be naively trusting of anyone who says they're a Christian, anyone who just because they go to church a lot, just because they read their Bible uh, that's not the issue. The issue is how sound are you in terms of your doctrine, in terms of your theology, and in terms of your application of the Word of God. Then in verse 35 we read, um, And some of those some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure. Well, I left a verse out here on the overhead. Some of them will who have insight will fall. That is, those who are mature believers, they will fall. That here has the idea of they will die. They will be killed in the process. In order to refine, purge, and make them pure. The word for refine is the Hebrew word sarap. The Hebrew word sarap, which is, you could spell it T-S-A-R-A-P. Sarap. 
uh, tsarap, and that refers to uh, something that was uh, melted. It, it's used in the process of melting or refining metal to put it under intense pressure of, and burning and heat in order to refine it. The second word purge is the Hebrew word barar, and that is B-A-R-A-R, and that is used here in the PL or the intensive stem, meaning to separate, separate out impurities or to remove impurities. And that's the purpose of testing in the believer's life is to get us to focus on our sin nature, how we're using the sin nature to handle problems, and to not use the sin nature to handle problems, not use our own energy, our own efforts, but to trust in the Lord. So that's the idea of purging. And then third, to make pure is really the Hebrew word laban. L-A-B-A-N, which means to make white. And it has that idea. It's not the same idea of consecration. It's not the same idea of ceremonial cleansing like we have in the Greek, katharizo. But it has a similar connotation uh, in order to purify, in order to purge out the sin in the life. And so this reveals the divine purpose for testing both in the Old Testament and New Testament is to get us to apply doctrine rather than solving problems on our own efforts. Now, deliverance didn't come. In the, in, at that time, we're told that, that um, in this particular verse, we're told that this would go on until the end time. Until the Messiah comes, well, the Messiah hasn't come in victory yet, so this is still the process, and it's still true in the life of believers uh, today that there is this continual uh, purging and suffering. And in America, we don't realize, because we've had such blessing in the 20th century and on into the 21st century, that the normal situation in human history is suffering and misery and hardship and the normal situation for the believer throughout most of church history is that of persecution, that of ostracism, that of difficulty. We sit back, and if we went through uh, one-tenth of the rejection of a believer living in a Roman Catholic country, a, a Protestant believer living in a Roman Catholic country during the Reformation, uh, most of you would probably recant your faith. We, we just don't understand what they went through, the torture that they went through, they would be thrown in jail and, and starved, and they would live in a rat-infested cell where there was no light coming in. And, and uh, uh, this would go on for year after year after year. Then they'd be taken out and burned at the stake, and they would uh, have their children taken from them, and they would lose everything they had. And, and this kind of suffering is has been the normal pattern throughout much of church history, and yet in America, we, we rarely have ever faced that kind of suffering. And sometimes we look around at someone and we see them going through years of hardship, years of difficulty. I can think of two or three friends that I have that it just seems like the more they struggle to try to bring about some level of stability in their life, the, the more difficult things become. And obviously the Lord's teaching them some things, and, and I don't know exactly what or why, but uh, sometimes you ask, or we have the tendency to ask why God doesn't bring this to an end, give them some relief. Why doesn't he come in and rescue them? And, and we forget that that level of suffering is more the norm than the exception. And when we're not going through that, that is the exception. And so uh, the Lord warns the Jews about this ongoing persecution. And Jesus does the same thing again. He repeats it in and reiterates this same type of warning in Luke 21, 20 and 21, where he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city. And this is a reference to what would happen in 70 A.D. when Titus and the 10th legions uh, attacked um, and defeated the Jews, and they went out under the fifth cycle of discipline. That revolt began actually in 66 A.D. with the first Jewish revolt, and there there was a Sabbath day when spontaneous riots broke out in all the uh, Jewish cities all up and down all throughout Judea. 
No one knows exactly why they started. Some suspect it was a Hellenistic plot, but whatever it was, there was a revolt against Rome, and the Romans decided to had had to quell this revolt. And so they sent in an army, and the army surrounded Jerusalem. This was early. This was in 66 A.D. And at that time, there was a group of believing Jews still in Jerusalem. Remember, there was a solid, solid church in existence in Jerusalem, and it was led by this time by Cleophas. Cleophas is mentioned in one of the in, in Luke's gospel as one of the men, perhaps one of the men who went to uh, was on the road with Jesus on the way to Emmaus. He was a cousin of Jesus and a cousin of Jesus' half-brother James, and he was a leader of the church. And under his leadership, when he saw this happening, he gathered all the believers, and, and it, was, it was sort of a miraculous event. The Roman general was distracted by another riot, and he broke the siege. And so Cleophas took all the believing Jews out of Jerusalem, and they left. And then the Roman army came back and ultimately decimated the city. But the, the believers understood Jesus' prophecy, and they left and, and were protected. Now, that brings us down to verse 36. Verse 36 is, introduces us to a new king. This is not going to be Antiochus anymore. It's a new king, and this is the Antichrist. And we will begin next time with a look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, how that relates to the future rule of the Antichrist, plus a number of other important issues related to understanding this passage with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, see what went on in the history of Israel and learn certain principles of application as it relates to our situation today and as it relates to us as believers as we have to endure various forms of adversity in our own culture and as a nation we may have to face very similar adversities and to realize that on the basis of Bible doctrine, on the basis of the stress busters, on the basis of these spiritual skills that you have given us, we can have tremendous joy and stability in our own souls no matter how unstable or chaotic the world situation might seem. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.